So every day, Laura, I find it very important to find one thing that makes me certain that we're all like figments of a dream of a large sleeping reptile. I'm so so interested (laughs) to see where this is going. And like eventually... Wait, what kind of reptile? You know, usually in this vision... It's like a big turtle. Like okay. Because, like, like, you know, turtles are old, right? So you yeah. picture like a big giant. I think technically tortoises are old, okay. but yes. A big giant. You're such a technically person. I know. You're just a big It's one of tortoise. my biggest flaws. Just picture the big tortoise, right? Yeah. Let's just keep our eye on the ball here. Okay. Big tortoise. Sleeping soundly. Mm-hmm. Dreaming the whole universe. Right? Yep. And we're in that. And the reason I feel certain of that today, Laura... <laughs> is because of an article in the New York Times, um, a profile of an editor. Her name is Judith Gerwich. Um, but I think, like, what made, what stuck this one out to me today, and I think to you, too, is that you and I have to do a lot of scrapping, right? Yes. Like, we work, one, we're agents, which means that the job necessarily involves, like, a certain amount of hustling and Lots trying to... begging. Yeah, it's a lot of begging. It's a lot of like moving around the fringes, like trying to scrap and fight your way into into whatever foothold in the agency you can find, right? Mm-hmm. And all the more so because we work at a small agency, mm-hmm. right? That isn't in New York. Like you and I are sort of the the plucky outsider, right? Yeah, the underdog. The if underdog, you will. if you will. But so today uh, we have this profile of Judith Gerwich, um, of who is the publisher and the top editor at the Other Press. Great books. Uh, great, they oh, do, great they books. Do and great she, books. And she is a great editor, to be clear. Um, but so um, it's describing her editing process here, Laura. And so just remember, as you're scraping yourself, you know, you're trying to climb yourself up by the bootstraps, uh-huh. trying to figure out how to tweet and brand yourself and make yourself someone as appealing as possible and uh-huh. your projects as appealing as possible to the publishing industry. This is who you're trying to break into. With. Okay. Okay, ready? <clears throat> I'm ready. She, Judith, brings her intensity to her uniquely oral editing process, hosting authors at her home in Cambridge, Massachusetts for days at a time while they read their manuscripts aloud to her. I thought, oh God, I'm going to be a prisoner of my editor, Michael <laughs> Greenberg said of the invitation. I had never encountered anything like this. At that point in 2007, neither had Gerwich. Greenberg was her first test case. He was working at the time on Hurry Down Sunshine, a harrowing and lyrical memoir about his teenage daughter's bipolar disorder, when he started reciting at Gerwich's dining room table for what would turn out to be five or six hours a day for three days. He remembers thinking that the process felt, and I quote, a little crazy. <laughs> okay, so, that sounds horrifying. So real quick, let's just recap um, what we've got here. Yep. Big we, time New York editor. So this person is editing in a manner where, you know, like you and I, when we edit, we're in, you know, Microsoft Word or like I know like a lot of the cool younger kids use Google Docs these oh. days. Um, but it sounds like this person is doing it by hearing the words spoken aloud to her. But at not a even not even like how we do edits for the query show or the first page of no, show. No, but no. literally she like brings them, puts them up in her home with like guest soaps. And makes them read out loud to her for six. Okay, can I just say, as somebody who has, like, created a business, we, you know, we mm-hmm. we have our special shows. We do this yeah. podcast every yeah. week. That involves a considerate amount of reading out loud cold. Mm-hmm. 
That is terrifying. Yeah, you, it is. Folks, you have no idea how many times <laughs> I flub. Yeah, I screw too. it up so much. Like, can you imagine if, like, the ending to your book is, like, like based yeah. on a table read? Like, well, as so, if you were an actor? Well, so get ready for it. So here's a description of, of the table read. Are you ready? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Judith would say, something's not right there. This is like just as this person's reading. This oh per- my and then quote, she would scrunch up her face. So she sits there, and again, like to be absolutely clear, I'm in deep admiration of what we're hearing <laughs> right now. I wish I could do this. I will but be doing this. It's terrifying. <laughs> this is now how I edit. So if you'd like to hire me for freelance editing or um, you know, you're submitting to me as an agent, prepare to have to read aloud while I, you know, sit in my, you know, parapet and Prepare to hear you, you know, recite your words in your own In voice. your basement. Yeah. Um, yeah. So pick a narrator you like to hear from because you'll be reading them aloud entirely. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So it's – oh, here we go. This, this is another good paragraph from this that I want to get to. Um, when Thompson sat down to read his novel Catherine Carlyle, the book had two endings, one of them labeled an epilogue. He was quite proud of this clever doubling, he said, and felt wonderful as he read it. Mm. Bad well, sign. Well, it hadn't hit Judith yet because here we go. When he finished, though, Gerwich was just shaking her head and saying, that doesn't work. A few minutes later, one of the endings had been moved to the front of the book. Okay, real so, important question. Yeah. Do we think that Judith does not read the books before she acquires them? I feel like she must. I, well, because, like, so I've pitched to the other press before. And, you know, sure. she, you know, she's been pleasant over email and um, her, you know, assistants or other editors have been pleasant over email. Like, I think that there's, like, you know, sort of like everywhere. There's kind of an initial read and, you know, they kind of acquire normally. But, man, this is um, – so, yeah, it just, it just blows my mind that someone can sit there and – um, edit in this way, but you see that, right? Like there's, and it just strikes this balance. I mean, we to me. literally do it. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, I guess. I mean, we do it for you know our little podcast. But like, I remember being like at Overlook as an editor there, the boss there. We would have to go. I um, mean, we had Allison on that one day, to, and I, you know, very early on in the show, we had Allison Rudolph on, who was my uh, colleague at Overlook, an editor too. But we used to have to go. Um, on any given days when our boss, uh, Peter Mayer, would work from home, we would have to go into his Soho apartment and sit at, like, his kitchen table and, like, present to him the issues that we've had that, we you know, we had to, like, keep our questions all week. And then if we, like, anything you would normally, like, email your boss at a publishing house, which, like any job, but in publishing, too, you send 100, you know, 100 emails a day about various problems. You have to keep all these and then, like, Ask them aloud, you know. At you, why table. couldn't you just send it? Like, does he not get email in he his didn't home? Get, he did, well, because some things, you know, were issues he would want to talk about at the table. So, like, literally to, at liter- the no, table. Literally at the table. Yeah, you would go to his house, and and but like, it's just there's this thing that happens sometimes where it's like there's such a gulf between the way that people who are like in in you know old are, school. <laughs> it's specifically it, it's like old school, school publishing, school. and like I say that with. Um, I mean, you know, we've talked about, and I am not to again. I am not including Judith in this group. We're about. To, I'm about to mention, like, we've talked about, like, you know, the kind of the old garden publishing, the various problems. The summer that, Friday people. Yeah, you know, like, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of problems here. But like, there's also just this version of it that's like, it like brings back all that eccentricity and all that stuff that like, 
you know, obviously what she's describing here to me at first glance sounds like horrifically inefficient, but also it like sounds kick-ass, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, like Eric, you do it I, to be a legend, and I now she is, can only, and so I am. <laughs> I now can only edit wearing a, like, fur coat. Yeah. Well, in... you've got an editing onesie, don't you? I I have an editing hoodie. hoodie. My onesies are oh. for any time. Various other occasions, yes. Yeah, um, my, my onesies are for things like napping and watching television <laughs> and also editing. But, like, specifically, I have an editing hoodie, yes. Can I say that as a writer, Yeah. this is my dream scenario Just for an editor? Just, like, going to some I luxurious home? I would love home. this because I really – this is uh, this is maybe strange, but I really love reading my work aloud. Like – yeah. It's, um, no. Oh, is that why you're so good at cold reading? I don't know, but like because you're way better than me. It's it, like it the makes idea of like mad. being like to me, like if I were like querying or like if I were trying to impress an agent, you know, in the first few pages, you know, whatever it is, like I wish the scenario was I could read the pages aloud because I'm much. I feel like I can present it better than it reads almost. You know, and yeah. So, it feels also feels like a little bit like one of those like singing shows, you know, where <laughs> the voice. yeah, where there's like except the they've already the, signed yeah, the contract, yeah, except there's a person in the chair and like they like smash the big X and then yeah. like Adam Levine like cries a little bit or something. On the plus like, side, yeah. you've already signed the contract. On the minus, she knows where yeah. you're sleeping, <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's like down the hall at her house for like a long weekend. Apparently, though, yeah. they have like these amazing dinners every night. Yeah. Though, oh, yeah, I'm sure. So like that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, but I feel like in 40 years, somebody is going to write this like amazing literary novel mm-hmm. in the style of like the Swans of Fifth Avenue, but about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. Well, so like the dream, I think truly the dream in publishing is to make it to a place where you can have yeah. some sort of eccentricity like this. You know what, though? I am really, truly an aural learner. You know, mm-hmm. like I do my best retention by hearing things yeah. which is really yeah. funny because i'm in a business where you read things with your eyes right yeah um, you don't you go days without talking to anyone no oh, i start wish. talking to yourself start talking to the dog no i talk to talk you to every your day pens. yeah what? <laughs> welcome to this episode of print run my name is eric kane with me as always is laura zatz say hello laura hello laura so we've got um i guess Today, our construct is going to be sort of a pair of, like, similar but different case studies and how um, they sort of relate. I don't know. You will, you'll see. It's great. You'll I see. Yeah. We planned it. But there's, we've got two stories that vaguely relate to each other in a way that I think is interesting. Um, before we get to that, though, the basic rundown, if you would, please. Welcome. So we are, I always want to say welcome, and I never get to, so I, I just like, threw it in. I feel like the energy today is, like... Magician performance where okay. we're like, oh, we're like, <laughs> if you could just look over here to my assistant. Folks, let me it, tell you something. So we have been, uh, we chemically stripped our stair banister today. Oh, that's a good point. And yeah. so it is, it is very harshly smelling of chemicals Fuming in this. Yeah, it's very fumey. So yeah. like we might be killing brain cells mm-hmm. just by sitting here. I'm more not, so than usual. More, sitting here. more so than usual. <laughs> like usually I'm like yeah. killing several by like podcasting and checking tweets at the same time. It's yeah. Weird. Yeah. We also had jello cheesecake, so that's that's the sugar is in I our believe, bloodstream. I believe they call that crossfading. Um, so anyway okay anyway so it is July 1st we are slightly high on some sort of chemical fume Um, Mm -hmm. yeah maybe stain definitely chemical stripping unsure of what was used Um, 
but we have three special episodes that have been out yeah. for several hours now mm. uh, for June. That includes one uh, one episode that specifically talks about the agency author contract. Yeah, that's the new one. Yeah. So take a listen to that. I think it's pretty fun. Of course, we also have our query show and our first pages show. Um, you can you can access those by going on to Patreon and becoming a member. If you would like for us to query or to 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 critique your query or critique your first pages or if you have questions or a taluna may concern or a suggestion for our third episode of the month send them to us we are at printrunpodcast at gmail.com so the first place we're going to start today is with truly a favorite place of ours i think um it's the wellspring that keeps on giving uh for this show it is the place where we get all our best content and that is uh, the Everything Store, Amazon. Um, they're at, they are at it again, folks. I regret to inform you. Um, but today, Still bad. St- <laughs> Update. They're still bad. <laughs> they are. Um, and we're going to podcast about it again anyway. Um, so today the article – so I'm looking at a New York Times article here today. And there's something in here that I think um, – I guess like, you know, you see pieces on Amazon all the time now. Amazon, it's like we get it. They're bad. Right. At this point, Amazon – in its various capacities, other than bookseller, it's a political issue, it's a tech issue, it's a you know labor issue, it's a, obviously a book issue in many like everyone. Amazon now affects every aspect of American life. In I mean, really, I think that that's fair to say at this point. Like it is ubiquitous. It is has enormous amount of leverage over American society. It has even more leverage than that over the book industry. Um, but so today, this is uh, from the New York Times a couple of days ago. Um, articles by a man named David Straitfield. Um, and here we go. So, <clears throat> the Sanford Guide to Antimicrobial Therapy is a medical handbook that recommends the right amount of the right drug for treating ailments from bacterial pneumonia to infected wounds. Lives depend on it. It is not the sort of book a doctor should puzzle over, wondering, is that a 1 or a 7 in the recommended dosage? But that is exactly the possibility that has haunted the guide's publisher antimicrobial therapy for the past two years as it confronts a flood of counterfeits, many of which were poorly printed and hard to read in Amazon's vast bookstore. So, basically what we have here is a situation where, and this is what we find in this article, um, is that this is something that, I don't even know, like, what's the next word past pattern? You know, like, it's just, this is the sort of thing that is happening so frequently mm-hmm. at Amazon that it's, like, hard to believe it's anything other than just, like, standard operating procedure, yeah, you know? it's like, oh, it's Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, They're exa- doing something exactly. else bad. Like, but, like, counterfeits have run amok mm-hmm. on Amazon. Like, people are able to, because using their platform, like, there's very little checks up front. Like, if you see a book that you want to just plagiarize and counterfeit and slap your own cover on, like... You pretty much can at this point, and people will mistakenly buy it as the real one. And what's happened here in a particularly high-stakes version of this is that a medical textbook publisher, you know, like someone who is um, producing a book with vital information for people's health um, is being counterfeited and the information is being, like, smudged and made wrong. and Like, literally photocopied. Yeah, yeah like, like yeah. you look at some of the pictures in this article, like, it really is, like, photocopies and stuff. And... But even apart, and that's even apart from the fact that um, you know someone else is like printing books in a garage and, and making money like, from yeah. it. So, but business aside, like the content itself here makes this particularly provocative, right? Um, but 
it just seems as though you read through, like you hear, you know, Lauren Groff appears in this article, you know, that there has been a counterfeit of Florida, you know, mm-hmm. floating around. There are, you know, are counterfeits of people's, you know, authors' names misspelled and all that kind of stuff. Like it's it's so common now. And, you know, I want to read, you know, this next bit here that says that has resulted in a kind of lawlessness referring to this this hands-off practice that Amazon has with dealing with this stuff. Basically, the effect is that they... There's no quality control right. with Amazon. Like Nobody's checking to make sure that the yeah. books that are being sold are actually the books and that the money is flowing to the writer. Like you can, and this has happened apparently, like, you know, there are booksellers, you know, going through Amazon right now who are, from what anyone can tell, they're like non-existent, you know, they're mm-hmm. like basically just these fronts for counterfeit operations. Um, and some people, it's actually gotten to the point where some, you know, investigators have you know, they're saying that they think that the, there might even be like some sort of money laundering thing going on. You know, like it's it's that ubiquitous. But like the point here is, let's get back to this piece. That has resulted in a kind of lawlessness. Publishers, writers, and groups such as the Authors Guild said counterfeiting of books on Amazon had surged. The company has been reactive rather than proactive in dealing with the issue, they said, often taking action only when a buyer complains. Many times, they added, there is nowhere to appeal in their only recourse, and this is the part that I find interesting, Their only recourse is to integrate even more closely with Amazon. Okay, so let's break down what that means, okay? And so the the reason we're spending time on this, first of all, is that this counterfeit, right, and allowing – anybody can sign up to be a seller on Amazon. Yes. Um, You know, for a – if you move, you know, 40 units or so a month, it's, you know, $40 fee. Right. Um, otherwise it's free, right? right? And Amazon makes its money regardless of what exactly is selling. But the, the So that's the key part. It is yeah. the key part. And so the 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 why this is especially heinous is that, you know, we've touched on piracy on this show many times before. But the thing about piracy is that most of the people pirating books were never gonna buy them in the first place. However, people are going to Amazon and they think that they're buying the real thing Mm. and they're spending money on what they think is the real thing and they were intending to buy it and that money is going who knows where. And so this this is this is following a pattern based, you know, from Kindle Unlimited, which we've talked about, which is the um, pay per page read service that Amazon does with ebooks like where that. people yeah. will stuff a bunch of nonsense into a book so that they get a bigger piece of the overall <clears throat> pie um, that Amazon has done nothing to curb. Well, it just gets at this idea that like, um, you know, between this and that, and this is a very, very basic point that I think needs to be reiterated again and again and again, is that Amazon doesn't actually like care about books. No, you, not really, even a little not, bit. Like, or the publishing industry. And you sort of see that, like, you know, we've covered, we did a big episode on Amazon way back when, so we won't relitigate all those points, but, like, they sort of have used books as, like, a foothold into other things, you know, like, it was sort of like a launch point to do all the other things that they wanted to do with their business, but, like, this line here at the end where it says their only recourse, you know, to deal with something like this is to integrate more closely with Amazon, like, you've got to provide, you know, more information, or you've got to sign up for more services, you've well, got to... even even beyond that, like, what, what a lot of these um, publishers are doing, particularly the, the scientific, particularly the textbook publishers, yeah. is that they are having, they are offering Amazon the opportunity to be the distributor for their books, not just the seller, but the distributor, rather than using a different distributor in an effort to curb... 
Amazon essentially allowing other people to steal their profits. So let's that. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And it's sort of the cycle that I'm trying to identify here, which is that the only way to like get Amazon's like service to quit hurting you is to use more of it. Yeah. Right. Like, to give them more money, to exactly. give them more control over your product. Like if you want people not to use Amazon to counterfeit your books, you have to use them as your distributor. You have yeah. to do these things that, you know, cut down on it. And like, you know, there are quotes in here from, you know, their spokesperson and they barely even acknowledge that there's a problem. You know, all this kind of stuff. You know, you have someone on here who, you know, self-published a book, you know, sold like, you know, re- you know, a thousand or, you know, I think like it was like the number was like 1,200 copies and like all of them were like, all the sales were like counterfeits. You know what I mean? Like no one bought the book that he actually like wrote and produced and self-published. And it's like, it's just crazy to me. And like, it just gets at this idea of, you know, it's something this big, you know, something as Amazon gets this ubiquitous and they do it in such a way that clearly like, I mean, eventually we have to be able to editorialize on our own podcast, right? Like clearly in a way that doesn't seem to care that much about the publishing industry's health, you know, the health of writers, the health of any of these people, you know, like as they do this, like there is a threshold and I think we're well past it where there's a way to meaningfully push back without like as sort of either certainly not as an individual at this point, you know, not even really as like a grassroots, you know, organization or like even like an author's guild. Like what's the author's guild going to do here? Yeah. You know, like all what are can, individual publishers right, going to do? There's nothing like we're sort of at the point where um, like, you know, regulatory reform is like the only possible. <laughs> and like we'll even see if I don't know, like it's one of those things where we've sort of passed the point of, of leverage, you know, like we've passed the point because it's. There's just a way that, you know, these sort of tech companies can kind of take hold and then grow and grow and grow. And by the time you realize that, well, hey, maybe I don't like the way you're growing, you've lost any ability to say otherwise, you know? And it just, it's very, it's, I mean, it's dismaying in its own way. And it makes you wonder, like, well, what do you do differently? Like, how, you know, how does book publishing extricate itself from a service like, you know, from something like this? And the answer is, that is, I mean, that isn't even the first question. The first question is, does big, big book publishing even want to extricate itself from this? Because they can't. They Instead, they would have to double down. You know, like the answers to any of these problems are always going to be give more to Amazon in hopes that their system works better for you. Right. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's upsetting to see and like. Do you know what this reminds me of? It reminds yeah. me of all of the discourse right now talking about how. It's ridiculous that there has been a push on everybody to stop using plastic straws yeah. when huge, like bi- the, yeah. the biggest parts about um, like climate change and oil usage are, are due to gigantic corporations. <laughs> you know, it's like one person drinking, you know, using three fewer straws a week is not really going to make a measurable impact. And so for the people who are stuck at this point and or the publishers or the writers who don't know what to do and they don't want to be on Amazon, they don't want to be part of this system, it's it's really only hurting you, right? Yeah. It's really, like, it's not making a dent in Amazon. Yeah. Like, we've already proven, like, Amazon doesn't care if they make money from book sales. That's the fucking What thing they that. care about <laughs> yeah. is that nobody else is making money from any other way other than their way because what happens is 
Amazon is not only the publisher, but it's the distributor. It is a proprietary software format for ebooks. They have, you know, the biggest marketplace for creating and self publishing and printing, but like they have everything. They're their own closed system. It's also the reviewer in and a lot the of reviewer. Like people are using, you know, star ratings and little consumer reviews and you know, those things end up affecting the algorithms and stuff like that. Like it's it really is its own closed loop and you there's really it's tough to know. You're how either to have. in the loop or you're out of the loop. The loop loop will still exist without you. And you're seeing like, you know, one of the the bit that really kind of um you know really got me was have you seen this like thing about like being summarized? You know, like there's a book like here it'll say that says those who write a popular book open themselves up to being summarized on Amazon. At least eight books purport to summarize Bad Blood, John Carreyrou's best-selling account of fraud in Silicon Valley, the popular novel where the crawdads sing has at least seven, quote, summaries. Like, people are just, like, spoofing your work. They're using the same cover. Like, you know, they have a picture here of, like, an identical cover with, like, a letter missing in the author's last name. You know, like, it's... Listen, Cliff's Notes <laughs> did this first. And yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but, it's just strange. And, like, there's yeah. one bit of the reporting here, I will say, like, in terms of how this gets covered that I really, really like in um, in a way that is rare for the New York Times. Um, but it says here, this in this line, it's just so clear and it's such a connect the dots kind of thing. And it sounds very simple, but it's not the sort of thing you see a lot of, which is Mr. Kelly, and he's the guy who um, had the medical textbook at the front of the story. Mr. Kelly's problems arise directly from Amazon's domination of the book business. Ooh. A to B. Like, that and that, like, so if you ask, like, how do we deal with this, step one is to, like, lucidly point at the thing. Like, book, like, I'm glad that, maybe this is how I want to phrase this point. I'm done debating Amazon with people. Mm. Like, I'm not, I don't want to have any more conversations with anybody about whether it's good for books or bad for books or any, like, I don't want to debate it's the charge of its of its presence. I have made my mind up. I think that the facts bear themselves out in a very specific way. I am now more interested in conversations about what there is to be done about it, you know, but like. So what the point is there is, to be done about well, it? Well, I don't know. But like the point is like, I don't, and this article takes as a given to or simply asserts that the reason this person is having this problem is because of Amazon. And right. because, not only just because of Amazon in this instance, but because of Amazon's widespread dominance of this industry. Yeah. And to me, that strikes me as perfectly reasonable thing to say, and I wish that we would just speak along those framing. Well, and so so I'm I'm just thinking about like fixing. I mean, we can't fix Amazon on this podcast, though. I wish I had that power. Um, I I am just thinking about how to fix the the fraud, yeah. right? And like, yeah. there are ways now on Amazon where if you write a review of like your cousin's book, yeah. Amazon knows because like, hello, you yeah. know, it's a surveillance state. So, um, they they will remove it. You know, they don't want inauthentic reviews, or they'll they'll have the tag verified purchase or something like that. Mm-hmm. There is no reason why Amazon couldn't remove books that aren't distributed like and and get evidence from sellers that they are getting these books from distributors or wholesalers or directly from the publisher if they are selling books like there's no reason and quite honestly it wouldn't hurt their dominance in any way shape or form what it would do probably is um change 
change how much money they're making. You yeah. know, if the if you're selling a bunch of fraud bo- fraudulent books and somebody buys the fraudulent book and then has to buy it again from a real seller, then they're making, tw- you know, more than twice the money. Um, and there's just there's just a lot of like there's a lot of stuff that Amazon could do to be like more benevolent of an overlord. <laughs> Funny thing about overlords, though, is huh? they're, they're not right. But like, I, yeah. I just it's it's one of those things where I don't know. Like, there's I I don't know how to convince people that a company being successful means that it has a responsibility to the people who made it successful. But, like, well, I mean... There are a few old, you know, uh, old, you ger- just... old German writers who might have something to say about that. <laughs> um, but <laughs> um, the one last bit here that I think is interesting, and this kind of ties into what we've actually talked about with things like Twitter, um, which is that it has put the moral response... Amazon has. It's put the moral responsibility of, like, finding and reporting fraud onto the people... Like using the site as opposed right. to them, like you know, they have this Project Zero, right? Which is like this, I guess, like it's framed as like this ability to, like, very easily report frauds as you see them. And I, you know, the people cited in this in this piece correctly point out that why is it our responsibility? Similar to like you know, as we you know, people talk on, um, you know, Twitter. Why is it that we have to report every Nazi individually as users? Like, why can't they just get rid of them. You know what I mean? Like, it's the same kind of debate. Like, tech platforms abdicate the responsibility of policing their own sites in this way. And it's, I mean, you know, we've said it before on the show about other topics. Like, um, there's, you know, too often places from Silicon Valley, you know, these tech platforms, they get away with saying, we don't know, we're neutral. You know, we are, we're just a server. You know, all the stuff that goes on to it, we're going to give you the tools to manage it yourselves. But, you know, we don't have any moral responsibility here. And I think that here it feels especially obvious that that is not the case, that they are actually failing at doing something that you would think they would have an ethical responsibility to handle and are not. Um, so let's um, talk about something good in publishing. <laughs> let's, uh, yes. On, kind of on the flip side Please. of this. Um, there is... Just some really, really lovely news coming out of Publishers Weekly. Yeah. Um, specifically about how Minotaur is, which is a, a, a like a crime thriller uh-huh. imprint, is celebrating its 20th anniversary. Yep. And fairly recently, it... They're an imprint at St. Martin's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And fairly recently, they did something really, really interesting, which is that they slashed their list in half. So now they only publish about 75 books a year. Yep. And they just tripled their profits. Okay, so that's huge. And it's interesting in a lot of ways. And it cuts against a lot of very, like, tried and true publishing-isms. Right. You know what I mean? Which the first is that, like... Like, we've sort of seen this trend toward, well, we need more books, right? Like, there need to be more books. We need to get as many. We need stuffed lists so that we can sell. It's a way of, like, for instance, spreading your risk out, right? You know, mm-hmm. like, you, you publish a bunch of stuff. You don't really invest that heavily in any of it. Any of it. If something hits, great. Otherwise, you've got just by volume, you know, you're making money and staying afloat. Right. And Minotaur here has taken the opposite approach. They have you know, cut the list in half. They've said we're going to publish these specific books well. They're specifically going to take risks 
on some of these stuff. With about twenty five percent of their yeah. list is like cross genre or yeah. kind of pushing boundaries in ways that their typically genre fiction does not. Well, it's just such a perfect because like so the other seventy five percent in that in that list it says here tried and true series is series stuff right so it's like this perfect mix between like house authors doing things that people are familiar with and like but then understanding that you can still push the envelope with some of your list without having to like i don't know sell the creative farm and like do things that um don't really you know that just feel like you know i feel like there's a, this kind of this widespread belief right now it's just sort of ambient and in the air, mm-hmm. and I I feel it personally. But no one's no one has been able to kind of put their finger on it really, which is like the publishing just feels a little bland sometimes. Mm. It's like there's so many books, everything is just kind of washing out. Like book stays in a book stays in the publicity cycle for what? How long? A couple months? If you're even. lucky, like sometimes it doesn't even get yeah, any publicity like, at all. It's so like the idea that a press is saying, actually, we think we can make more money. And they have not even the same amount. Like the conversion rate is not even. Well, hey, we made you know we published less books, but they we published half the books, but they made twice as much, so it evened out. It's they published half the books and they made six times as much. You know they've tripled. Like, it's that that's really heartening to me. And like you look at some of the ways you know they've said that they've done it here. You know they, um, you know they've really invested, like you said, in cross genre stuff. You know, trying to like push the experimental envelope. They brought on as an independent consultant um, the owner of a Houston mystery bookstore, who they looked to for help with how to make a book break out. And you know, what is what is working? Should we do these arcs? How do we really make they hired this someone attention? who knows something? Yes. Yes. And it's okay. So here's so here's the thing. <laughs> We just spent all this time just talking yeah. about how like impotent we feel with yeah. Amazon, and we're like looking like we do every week, like yes. we do every week. But at the like as a as a flip, we are now looking at a publisher that's been around for twenty years who is actually doing business like they like and care about books. Yep. yep. Like and and you know and we talk all the time on this podcast about that line between art and business, mm-hmm. right? That you that you have to treat it as both mm-hmm. um, and to kind of find where that line is. And there's, the, you know, there's, it, this is proof. There's proof that you can find that balance. You know, Minotaur has done something like they've taken their biggest names, their like so-called gateway titles, mm-hmm. and they put them in trade paperbacks, priced them at $9.99, and have that be a way to pull people in. And they've got ex- they've got Q&As in them, they've got essays or like book club questions or something like that. And that way they're 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 rethinking how to package their products and how to sell their products yeah. and how to and how to break out their products in ways that allow them to to have like real like nonfiction crime stories yeah. as part yeah. of their list or historical fiction as part of their list. Which is I think you're so right. Like it speaks to like so often in publishing, even separate from art and business, which is definitely a distinction that is being constantly drawn and kind of navigated all the time, but also like doing things because you love like the classical trappings mm-hmm. of book publishing versus doing things that supposedly make money. Like, you know, these, you know, this press, it it talks a lot about, you know, wanting to publish with, or it does things with a mind towards selling specifically in like brick and mortar bookstores. Right. You know, like it, it puts a lot of energy into displays and things like that. And you just get the sense that 
they've decided that no 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 we're gonna make the old model work in new ways you know mm-hmm. like we're gonna take these old things that you know the bookstore right like people Imagine, you know, a press just saying we're doubling down on physical bookstores in 2019. Like, it doesn't Dope. work. No one would do that. Like, but it's such a the idea that someone could do that intelligently while also like taking into account like wisdom from the digital moment. Like, mm-hmm. you have here, like, the bit I really loved in this piece was this discussion where, you know, their publisher kind of says, um, you know, people aren't because of, you know, online shopping and things like that. Like, genre lines have blurred Mm -hmm. you know like people aren't going to different sections of the bookstore to look for different things right like it's not like and so the idea like a cross genre book it's much more possible now and we can play with that but then we can use those distinct books to then put into a physical store in a certain way and it's like you just have what feels to me like a really really excellent case study of a press kind of threading the line between like new technology and um, like old habits. And another know? way they're really threading that line is that they have a website that they where they talk about crime fiction, right? Like they yeah. talk about mysteries, they talk about thrillers. Um, it's called the criminal element, and it's and it's you know at this point it's up to one hundred and seventy five thousand views a mm-hmm. month. But here's here's the genius of a of something like this. Mm-hmm. It's publisher agnostic. Yeah. So the they're so they're not just like trying to push their books. What they're trying to do is they're trying to push their genre. They're trying to cultivate a community. They're around cultivating their yeah. a community around the types of books that they publish because then it doesn't like people visit it because they want to hear about books because they're fans and they want to hear about it from fans, which yep. means that, of course, they look at the publisher as, OK, this is like for us, by us. Yeah. Great. Like, I'm going to read these books. And which is it feels, Eric, th- I mean, this this website has been around for a decade. Mm-hmm. Right. But this feels like such a modern approach to digital marketing where it is more selling a community and selling an experience it's not selling an individual product so so many so many imprints will just say you know this book is 2.99 today you should totally buy it or like hey buy this these these books that i'm going to hit you over the head with but the thing is is then people get sick about hearing it people don't trust it people stop paying attention to it which is different than something that organically creates something because they just fucking love the book. So what you're pointing to, and I think it's a really it's a really excellent point, is like publishers and imprints, and this is a glib point I make all the time, is like the worst book accounts on Twitter, the most bland vanilla ones, are the publishers. They're the worst. Right. The but, agencies and, are pretty bad too. But <laughs> But that is a way of making a more substantial point which is that publishers don't really have a content presence in and of themselves beyond their own books. They have no point of view. Like they're they're just a seller, right? And so and all their content is designed around getting you to buy a book to a degree that as you're saying that no one wants to based on those tweets or any, or based on those sort of messaging because that's all we've heard from them. Yeah. But like I remember like when I was at Oxford, um Obviously, Amazon came up a ton, right? Mm-hmm. Like as it did in every, as it does in every press. Like it's not like proprietary to say, "Hey, we talked about Amazon when I was at this <laughs> press." But like one of the things that they were really proud of, and they were correct to be proud of it, was uh, the OUP blog. Okay. Um, this site that they have, where you know Oxford obviously has a lot of pretty distinguished authors who write for it, and it was just basically this, you know, I mean, it was the, the Oxford University Press blog, but 
the site made a point of not like selling products or moving books. It was just like if you're in, you know, it was just art um, authors coming in to write interesting articles on whatever the topic of the day was, mm. right? And so it felt like a content site. Like it felt, it felt like a logical place you would go to like read about something you were interested in. Sure. And like, sure, you would advertise some, but like when they were, you know, and when any of these places were talking about, like if we were looking for a way to fight back against Amazon in any kind of small way for your press and your press alone, one of the ways you would theoretically want people to do it is to get their books um, or to buy their books and to engage with their stuff on sites other than Amazon. Yeah. Right? That's the fundamental problem. That's the fundamental quest is like, how do you get around having to then use an Amazon link? And the key way to do it, at least one of the key ways, is to have a place people want to go anyway. So that when, you know, at the bottom of the link, you know, in the article description um, or the author bio for whoever just wrote the piece you loved and it says, hey, you know, this person um, is also the author of this book on a related thing and you click on it, it's your own site, you know, or like the banner ads on the sides are mm-hmm. from your own site and they're tailored specifically with the, like there's a way to kind of steer and funnel traffic based on the fact that you've and this is obviously a very like cynical way of talking about getting people to read interesting things like it's not all about getting you know eventually making a sale but that is an added feature here like if you're trying to detach yourself from Amazon like one way to do it theoretically is to have a cultivated presence that doesn't rely on it yeah and so that I think is a really excellent wing of, of Minotaur here right like crime reads or um, crime readers excuse me they they trust this imprint not just for producing good books but for producing content they like even if they don't know it right because the site's publisher agnostic like I'm sure a lot of people who use the website don't necessarily know that it's connected right. they just go there because they like it and maybe they end up getting expo- get getting exposed to books that they you know that are probably um, heavily um, you know, like I'm sure like whatever book you know discussion and advertising is a little bit skewed toward. You know the press, which it should be. You know, well, I mean, I mean but the like, people writing it probably yeah. are more yeah. familiar with yeah. the books exactly. that they're publishing. Exactly. So, like, you create these spaces where you can kind of, where you can play the game on your terms. You know, yeah. as opposed to having to like hope the algorithm spits out your book on a given search. You know, and I don't know. I, I think that's. Uh, I think it's really good. And I just, I just love to see proof that. Looking and working and operating within this industry like you care about what's in between the two covers, mm-hmm. like actually matters. Well, it, it matters on the on the financial line, right? Like, right. This can work. It can, you can. And it does. You can be someone who really loves books in all the earnest, starry-eyed ways people talk about loving books and also be a successful publisher if you know what you're doing. Yeah. Like, if that you know is, what you're doing. Those ideas are not in opposition. And it's cool to see that. And congratulations to Minotaur for having, you know, a good few years for Woo! being successful. Um, but I think, like, it sort of serves as an interesting foil to what we talked about to start, right? Like, if the idea is to not have to keep doubling down on your Amazon usage, one way to do it is to really think about what you're doing. You know, yeah. like, how can we generate things ourselves? How can we be more intentional and not just seek the easiest grasp, you know, the most desperate thing, like, how can you create, you know, we talk all the time about alternative structures, right? Like having a website that people like to go to is an alternative structure. Understanding how to use indie bookstores or use a consultant who really understands that scene. Like, and then this is the last thing that I promise I'll stop talking about it. But like <laughs> it's um, the idea of having a consultant in like this press presumably said, okay, hey, 
independent bookstores, we want to support those. Plus, you know, they're going to give us more favorable terms. It's better when we sell there than it is when we sell on Amazon. Mm -hmm. The idea that they would then say, okay, we're going to hire someone who is from that background to teach us how to make sales there. That's so simple and stupid sounding. And it is so rare. No one else does it. Like, <laughs> it's no like, one else like, does it. It's truly, truly, like, the idea that you would just have someone in to, like, poke at your bits of conventional wisdom. Like, here, you know, they have, like, um, you know, they've been asking this person questions. You know, like, do advanced reader copies matter? If so, why? Like, just challenging the fundamental notions. And of continuing the, to yeah, challenge them like, as technology improves and as reader behavior changes. Because there is no industry in the world that relies more on outdated conventional wisdom than publishing does and, and there's so, no industry that moves slower <laughs> yeah quite really honestly good. um so but anyway it's just i think it was cool to see and i i um i wish them more success good job you guys um so let's move on to our taloon it may concern yeah taloon it may concern i'm reading out loud now you guys and i'm very i'm very stressed out because we just talked about reading out loud but we're i'll gonna scrunch do it. my face if it's if it's not working. <laughs> it's not good thank you I've just gone through the arduous plot process, see I already fucked it up, <laughs> of applying for MFA programs across the country. So far, I've gotten into Sarah Lawrence College for their speculative fiction track, the new school, and Texas State University. I was also waitlisted for Columbia, which means I still have a good chance of getting in. I know that an MFA isn't necessary in order to stand out to agents and editors, though, and because of this, the advice I received over and over is to not go into debt for an MFA. Of the schools I've been accepted to so far, Texas State is the only one offering full funding as a teaching assistant and a stipend. They'd be paying me to go to school, whereas Sarah Lawrence only offered me a couple thousand dollars per semester towards tuition and the new school only offered me a 60% scholarship, which would still amount to like $28,000 in debt. And Columbia, eek, that'd be more like $120,000 in debt. I know this should be a no-brainer. I should go where the money is. And Texas State is pretty ideal for me for a ton of other reasons, too. It's just outside Austin, Texas. It has Karen Russell and Tim O'Brien on staff. Eric, stop panting over there. <laughs> and I can tell it's a really supportive environment and will give me the time and space to write full-time for a few years at least. And it was hard to get into. It only has a 10, per 10 to 15% acceptance rate, whereas for other schools, are, they're a lot less selective. Yes, even Columbia is less selective. But as someone who aims to write literary fiction, both speculative and realistic, I wonder, does boasting a household name program in your bio make a big difference in queries? Could studying at a more under-the-radar program seem negative at all? What are your thoughts from an agent perspective? Sincerely excited and trying not to be pretentious. First of all, be pretentious. Yeah. Good for you. Um, so, <laughs> so this is what I would say here. It's a, good, it's a really good question. It kind of touches on... Um, well, I guess it's a good question, and that has a very easy answer, I think, to me. But it's an interesting thing to talk about um, because Beyond the easy it answer. is a widespread neurosis of a lot of writers who talk to me specifically and, I think, query at large. Um, so your instinct, just in a word, like if for some reason you enter a train tunnel or something and the podcast cuts off here, take the money, I think. Take the money. Like from what, you're, from what you're saying about the program that is paying you to go have time to write and work with great faculty, you know, to do all that kind of stuff, like, really, I think, unless there's a really good reason, and maybe there is, like, I don't know the whole situation, all I have is this letter, like, unless there is really, really a reason we're not aware of that you want to go to these other places, like, I would say it's not usually a good idea to, like, go into debt for an MFA, yeah. like, it's I just mean, not, because it's not, it's not a degree that, 
gets like it gets you somewhere in that you've spent time writing under critical conditions, but it's not a, it's not like it makes you more qualified for a job other than writing professor theoretically, which good luck in that job market. Um, but so I would say take the money. But there's the more interesting part here is about like brand name recognition mm-hmm. and clout as it relates to query one. I would say um, with queries, it doesn't really make a difference to me, especially no. when you can do the thing you just did in this letter, which is say, I studied under person X. Like, yeah, I don't also, care where... if you want to write literary and speculative fiction, yeah. go to the school where Karen Russell is. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. like yeah. Karen Russell. Yeah. I just mean, like, framing it like if you're really worried about that and you can end up saying well I studied under this person or in a workshop with them like that's an easy way to get around that problem but even that you don't even have to really do that like just saying um you know, I guess this is a long way of saying like saying where your MFA is from unless it's like truth I mean unless it's like Iowa or something like probably isn't necessarily that big of a deal to me and even like I don't know I've read I've read a lot of bad books from people from Iowa um <laughs> but it's, I don't know. I I think that you know the the more interesting part here is like, does brand name recognition help in a way beyond queries? Because I think this is a question that is more interesting when you're not touch talking about query letters, right? Like, if you're talking about writing careers and things like that, does it matter to have gone to an MFA? And like, so I I actually think that it might hurt. Not so far as like if you go to Columbia, then. Like that's a mark against you, but but more that places that have brand names are one more expensive, and so you're probably going to spend more time worrying about money and more time working and less time actually working on your craft. Mm-hmm. And second of all, that a lot of places with brand and don't get mad at me, um, but a lot of places with big brands at LZATS. At LZATS um, a lot of places with bigger brand recognition have that brand recognition because they're known for producing a lot of the same type of writer. So yeah. like there's there's kind of this like nobody really likes to talk about it except for like when you're three martinis in at like a yeah. at a AWP like happy hour, but there are certain well-regarded MFA programs where their goal is to just produce the same type of writer and so for me especially for somebody who wants to write kind of cross genre it it is actually more interesting to me to see you go somewhere where I don't automatically know where that person's gonna write like like if you went to Iowa I know what your book would look like there's there's I mean it's good writing but there is kind of this Iowa writer feel Right. And so I I think that, first of all, I mean, besides the money, forget about the money. Like, I would love to see every, anyone and everyone, if, if you want to do an MFA, if you want to do an MFA to improve your craft, I would want to see you do the MFA that gives you the most opportunity to do your craft, to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, I mean, that's fundamentally it. And it's going to do it in a way that will help you shape your own writing rather than kind of fundamentally change what your writing is like. I would also say that a really big function of an MFA program, at least in my eyes, and and this is something that's very easily mappable across social media lines as well, Mm -hmm. is, is like 
you're looking for a community of people to support you, right? Like, if you look at, you can map blurbs across whether, like, if a writer went to Iowa, mm-hmm. like, I've done this before, like, I've, um, with This is friends. an Eric's favorite like, thing. You can see where an author went to school and then guess at who blurbed it on the back <laughs> and usually at least nail one or two of them, you know? Which is not, again, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it speaks to the point that, like, the idea here is to create a community and put you in proximity with writers who can then kind of support you as you go about your career and stuff. And, like, one danger at a big, at a huge program is that you can get crowded out a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, if you're at a place like, you know, Texas State, where, by all means, it sounds like a tremendous program. I mean, one thing, that this all might be moot because the way you framed it, you make it sound like the best program on this list. Yeah, I would like to go to there. (laughs) But, like... um, you know, if it's a place that offers you a chance to, like, really meet people, to really meet your professors, to kind of really kind of put in roots with certain people that um, can help you, you know, like, that feels really more valuable to me than just being part of, you know, something that feel might end up being a little less personal. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, so much of that kind of stuff, that brand name visibility, it's less about program name and more about, like, individuals, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, so... You know, use the time, no matter where you were, you would be using your time in your MFA to not only write, but, like, to develop a connection with other another writer, you know, to, like, meet somebody, to become critiques partners with somebody, to work under somebody, like, to develop actual human relationships. Um, and that's something you can do anywhere, and those are things that are going to be translatable in a query letter and in your work and in your career beyond, no matter where you go. So I would say all that said, um, since you're looking for an answer and we're total strangers... Um, I'm not going to totally feel like I'm butting into your life, but take the money. Take the money. Nobody, like, honestly, having an MFA is not a huge boon, nor is it a deterrent. In terms of queries, yeah. In terms of your queries. So extend that to where you got your MFA. Like, that doesn't matter. It's more of, like, what program will help you improve your writing the most. Exactly. And And I think that you've kind of... In writing this letter to us, you're kind of asking for permission from people who are in the business. I'm very jealous of this person. Neither of <laughs> us who have MFAs um, to to kind of do what your gut is telling you to do. And we urge you to take the money mm-hmm. and also highly recommend the Airstream trailer food trucks in <laughs> Austin. Um, okay. Thank you all so much for joining us on this um, very fume-filled and ranty episode of Print Run. Um, We remind you all to take the money and to pay attention later this month. We will have our special episodes and we will see you for a regular episode next week, though it will be a few days late because of the holiday. Fume it up. Fume it up.